0: This podcast began in a garage surrounded by boxes. Shit, sure. it's another box. Sorry, a lot of it is just added extras. Jeff Hall's garage, to be exact. Do you mind if I record just this conversation? Just... You, can, you can
1: record anything yeah. you like, you know? You can ask me any questions you like. You
0: know? Yeah. I'm going to take that and put over there. Yeah.
1: And we're going to start sifting through stuff.
0: I kind of imagined a lot of murder re examinations start somewhere like this. Staring at piles of paper stacked haphazardly by a family member of the convicted. So there's quite a few boxes. There's quite a few. There's
1: a lot of boxes.
0: A brother who's been the custodian of this most precious material, waiting years for the pieces that made up Alan's conviction to be rearranged in some way they might add up to innocence. Like I
1: say, there's at least ten thousand pages of trial evidence uh, and. Uh, interviews, police interviews, a lot of information that's come back from our detectives. Tangled web of court documents, that's what I call it.
0: (laughs) Jeez. A tangled web I was about to dive into. One that the Hall family has been tangled in for almost the entire time I have been alive.
1: There's evidence here. Oh yeah. Sealed evidence. Uh, this is a jersey that Fred Ellen wore at the time of the, oh, yeah. of, the um, of the homicide.
0: This looks like the trial much though. And as we started sorting through the mountains of documents, I realized I was setting out on the path other journalists have walked down. Hi, my name is uh, Mike Wesley Smith. I suppose you could call it podcasting. Oh hi. I was wondering is, does Bernie Holt live here? You can't No. I can't speak English. But really it's more like fishing. I'm a, a journalist from News Hub. I'm going to get in uh, touch with you about an old um, uh, murder investigation from Papakura. As you can imagine, you pound the pavements and talk to a lot of people you have never met before. Oh, I was wondering if uh, Ronald was available. Uh, I think you've got the wrong number. Sorry. There is a lot of that, I tell you. No, uh, I
1: think you got the wrong
0: number. Oh, my apologies. I have left dozens and dozens of voicemails Hit many dead ends Hi, I was wondering if Wayne was available There's no Wayne here, sorry And frankly, I really want to say something unpleasant to whoever this woman is, if I ever meet her
1: The number you have called is not currently active or is invalid Please check the number and dial again
0: But then that's what I suppose is one of the enjoyments of fishing. The waiting, the hoping, never knowing when or if you might strike it lucky. So maybe if I ring back in the evening? Oh, yeah, that's all right. Cool, thank you. Boom! (laughs) Ha ha! I think I got him. And as I loaded all those boxes into my car that January morning outside Jeff's garage. You're gonna have a bit of fun, aren't you? Yeah, it's like a treasure trove. I had no idea where on earth. I would end up. You're careful I else not get two thousand you just no and, and turn crazy. <laughs> no way. My my wife is there to keep me sane. Well, I better get away and start reading. I'll see you in about uh, eighty months. <laughs> well, I hope it to be sometime sooner. From News Hub, this is Grove Road. I'm Mike wesley Smith.
1: Radio Pacific. A masked intruder stabbed a middle-aged Papakura man to death last night and left his victim's two sons injured in the attack, which took place in their own home.
0: For the past year, I've been investigating a home invasion and murder that happened on a quiet suburban street in Papakura on the night of October 13th, 1985. He's not the sort of person that would go looking for trouble or even go getting into mischief. I've retraced the steps of the killer, interviewed witnesses who were never called to testify, and uncovered evidence that was never submitted to the court. A weed. It used to be a weed, mate. (laughs) He was dead set weed. Like I said, I'd
2: be able to snap the guy within about 10 seconds,
0: I reckon. This is the story of the murder of Arthur Easton and the conviction of Alan Hall, a man with no alibi or answers. But it's also a story about our system of justice, the power and trust we give to police and prosecutors, and their ability to find the truth.
2: And then the older one, he turned around and said, I should have killed the black bastard.
1: My name is Salmon Hall, and I was
3: wrong with three convicted of the murder
0: of The, the portrait of the offender had changed. As told by Brendan and Kim from their hospital beds, the intruder was no longer definitely a Maori person, but still a tall male with a medium build, but very strong. He had medium-length brown hair and had been wearing jeans, and his top was long-sleeved. It was hardly the clearest description, but the boys had now told police that the man's face was masked by his woolen hat, and they weren't able to give any further details. As the description of the intruder evolved, the police search broadened. Here is Detective Senior Sergeant Calvert McMinn, one of the heads of the inquiry, speaking to media. I think he's either a local resident or someone who knows Papakura well, perhaps a visitor uh,
2: to Papakura or a resident returned and since gone. I think that the movements of the offender on the night suggests a local person. Someone must
0: know who he is, someone is harbouring him, Someone must know the connection between the bayonet and the hat. 57 officers had been put on the case. Detective Senior Sergeant McMinn told the press that police were squeezing the community pretty hard for information. They had called at more than a 1,000 households, taken more than 100 people in for questioning, executed almost 40 search warrants. But they still could not tie anyone to the bayonet and hat. Oh, I'll show you where you're. Um Alan's family lived. So, Salas Place. Oh, yeah. I'm driving to Salas Place, a quiet cul de sac of Papakura with my producer, Maggie. The houses there, for the most part, are now surrounded by high fences, except for the old Hall family home, which is still exposed to the street. It's lawn rolling out from the front door to the public footpath, as was the style in 1985.
3: And um, so he slept in the in so, the garage was there was there another it was, building out the there's back.
0: A, yeah, so, mm-hmm. so there's a little sleep-out which is now used as like storage by the current owners. But this was this was as it was in 1985 when they raided it. Um, it's a nice house. It's yeah, tidy it looks like. It's, the house you go visit your grandparents for. Yeah. Yeah. And it was in this house that Alan Hall grew up and lived all of his life and where his family, his mother and siblings continued to live after Alan was sentenced for the murder of Arthur Easton. The house is about a 15-minute walk from Arthur's house on Grove Road. And where were you living in 1985? How Who were you living
1: there with? Parents. I think, yeah, um, it's
0: Father died, so... That's Alan speaking to me in prison. In case you couldn't understand him, he's just mentioned that in his final year living at Sellers Place, his father had died. Ellen's father, Calston, was a carpenter, and only 53 years old when he died suddenly from heart failure on the 18th of September 1985. 52-year-old Arthur Easton's murder happened just one month later. Calston, known as Kelly to his family, left behind six adult children. From oldest to youngest, they were Robert, Gary, Greg, Alan, Jeff, and Andrea. And of course, there was Kelly's wife and Alan's mum, Shirley, a woman slight in frame but tireless in her fight for Alan. Shirley died a few years ago, but in the late 1980s, she was interviewed by Radio Pacific journalist Jeannie Anderson for an on air documentary about Alan and his case.
3: Not at all violent. I mean, he's not the sort of of person that would go looking for trouble or even go getting into mischief.
0: That budgie, chatting furiously away in the background, belongs to Alan. He got the bird while in prison, but Shirley adopted it after it was decided he would not be allowed to keep a pet in his cell. As he grew up, Shirley says Alan was awkward and shy. He struggled to keep up at school and was eventually told he would not be allowed to sit school certificate.
3: No, he wasn't allowed to, unfortunately, and that still rankles with him. He did want the chance, but even though he didn't have a hope of getting it, you know. Why wasn't he allowed? Well, because of his mental slowness.
0: Alan had few friends, but he found independence through his work. His first role was at the Cadbury's plant on Hunua Road, and his second was at the Sterling Pharmaceuticals factory in Manurewa, helping package up medical drugs, where he worked until he was sent to prison in nineteen eighty six. I've spoken to many members of Alan's family and people who knew him well, and what they often describe about him is that he was simple or not as mentally alert as others.
3: Um, It's hard to put a finger on the exact problem.
0: This is Greg, Alan's older brother. We're sitting in his lounge in Auckland, surrounded by piles of paper relating to Alan's case, which Greg has spent years combing through.
3: He could probably be manipulated easily. Like, if someone told him something was wrong, he would do his best to help them. And if, you know, um, people wanted to use him, they could use it.
0: Despite his challenges, though, Greg says his brother... Was a gentleman who just got on with living.
3: He had a good job. He was actually doing really well for himself, actually. He um, had employment. He always had a job. Yeah. Um, he was starting to take overseas trips by himself. Um, so he's saving money. He wasn't like blowing money on alcohol. He never drank alcohol. Right. Um, never did drugs or anything like that. Um, he was just, yeah, he's, he's on the right track. He was yeah. heading upwards.
0: Alan's younger brother, Jeff, sees similar. What was Alan a violent man? <laughs> it's completely opposite, you know. It's, yeah. it's
1: Alan is a slight. He was a slight man. Um, I think my grandfather described it. Uh, Alan is the sort of person that would uh, walk around a sleeping cat, you know, um, rather than 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 wake it.
0: Most people will tell you that Alan has a quiet nature, and having spent time with him, I'd say the same. As we spoke in prison, there are periods where his lack of intonation and animation make Alan appear emotionless, a trait which was taken by detectives 33 years ago as telling of a cold and callous mind. It's a description, though, his family rejects without hesitation. Alan is not very confident. He speaks softly, holding his chin down. He has a quiet staccato manner of answering questions, and he doesn't tend to say any more than the question put to him demands. And how do you find life in here? Oh, you get by. You do? Yeah.
2: How, what, what's your main thing? Of, what do you do to get by? What gets you by? I'll call it I call right sometimes. like to keep to myself,
0: brother. There can be a tendency for lawyers mounting legal arguments to reduce the accused, the essence of who they are, to only a few lines. In Alan's case, he was described in court as intellectually backward or limited in intelligence and slow. But having spoken with him, I don't know that these labels capture all of who he is. For example, once he warms up, a conversation with Alan finds an easy rhythm. From beneath the reserved exterior comes flashes of humour, insight, and it seems, sincere empathy for the Eastern family.
2: Yeah, I honestly to see this for them. They lost their father. Yeah. I want, I want to see the real murder. If he or if they are
0: still alive. I want to repeat what Alan just said because it can be difficult to understand him at times. What he told me is, I want to see true justice for the Eastern brothers, and he wanted to see the real murderer caught if they are still alive. Then again, the police would argue from beneath that same reserved exterior, Alan can and did exhibit a murderous rage. In interviews with Alan, detectives would describe him as looking angry and fierce. And when Alan was eventually arrested, he struggled with officers, who later said he was surprisingly strong for his size. So what is the truth? Who is Alan Hall really? And what is he capable of?
2: He might not have been the brightest light in the chandelier, mate, but no way. To this day, I still do not believe it.
0: This is Mike Bungard, who used to work with Alan packaging boxes at the Cabri factory on Hanua Road.
2: I was at Cadbury's for quite a few years and, and there wasn't a thing I couldn't do there. And anyway, I, my, one of my jobs there really was to um, make the marshmallow for the mallet puffs and the toffee for the toffee pops and all that, and the cream for the cream biscuits. And right beside that, and I'm talking... Hang on a minute.
0: Shut up! On the factory floor, Mike worked just down the line from Alan. When asked to describe Alan, the main characteristic Mike comes back to time and again... It's his size and strength.
2: His job was to wash sultanas before they went into the sultana pasties. And these boxes, look, at, at, by memory, I think they were about 15 kilos each. I used to give him grief, mate, because these 15 kilo boxes, <laughs> he, I won't his arms to snap off, that's how skinny the guy was. He used to be a weed, mate. <laughs> he was a dead set weed. I, I reckon if you soaked him in a bath, I reckon you'd be about 50 kilos maximum. If that, not, he wouldn't be very heavy.
0: Alan's boss at his second job at Sterling Pharmaceuticals was a man called Paul Appleford. To this day, Paul is willing to vouch for Alan's character. Yeah,
2: he was a good worker. He was always obliging. If one would do a job, he'd go and do it and do it the best he could. If he made a blue or made a mistake, he'd come and tell you about it. He wouldn't hide the fact. So he's a pretty upfront sort of guy. He was
0: honest, reliable and conscientious. It was through his work that Alan really began to find his feet, Although he was quiet, he was keen to take part in workplace social activities such as a skiing trip to Mount Ruapehu earlier in 1985. It was on this trip that Alan would be photographed on the ski field wearing a brown woolen hat, a hat that he'd borrowed from his brother Greg. The one that he's wearing is my hat. That is your hat? Yeah. You see that? Yeah. Greg still got that photo. You see Alan pictured from head to toe on the ski field's mid-stride Wearing one of those fetching ski suits synonymous with the 1980s.
3: That's my jacket, and he's got my ski pants, and those my old motorbike gloves.
0: When I visited Greg, we sat down in front of his computer, where he stores his old photos of Alan and the family.
3: That's a lot of different photos here. Um, there's just like the old and instantatics and things that have been scanned.
0: Right. They're the kind of scenes that fill thousands of family albums up and down the country. There's photos of holidays at the beach, trips to the local swimming pool, a grainy photo of Alan on a skateboard. Yeah, this is a family portrait we used to get. It's obviously one of the outtakes because everyone's looking the wrong way. And while scrolling through these images, you can see that the halls don't appear all that different from the Easterns. Just two ordinary families, decent people, living in different houses a 15-minute walk apart in Papakura.
3: This normal family like you find...
0: Anywhere in New Zealand, yeah. yeah. In the decades that have passed since Alan's conviction, his family have taken on the burden of trying to clear his name. Till the day she died in 2012, his mum, Shirley, never stopped fighting. Alan's younger brother, Jeff explains.
1: Well, I mean, um, you couldn't be more proud of, of a mum at that time, you know, um, bringing up six children, yeah. losing her, her husband after long illness and a very short time later having her son arrested for murder mm. and and she did a great job you know she she got, gathered a lot of evidence and she did what she she could for yeah. mother
0: for her son the fight is now in the hands of Greg and Jeff in a way this seems as much a fight for Shirley as it is for Alan although Alan kept to himself he did have interests outside of work cycling and music. He liked sweet nostalgic music like the carpenters and air supply. And he collected military memorabilia. He owned many books on the subject and liked to mail order gear from an army surplus store in Hamilton called Valentine's. Crucially, for what would eventually play out, over the years Allen also purchased three bayonets from the store, including a distinctive M96 Swedish bayonet. And why did you decide to order bayonets? Oh, that's fascinating. Oh, yeah. Tom. What did you find fascinating about them? Um,
2: being young, I was yeah. just um, fascinated having my hand. Coming.
0: Yeah, because I think you mentioned at one point in on one of the statements you said you had it for protection. Can't be. Yeah. It it's good to have it
3: behind Kind of nasty people up there. Well, you, had you
0: been particularly threatened
3: by anyone? Oh, or? no,
0: no, no. No, it was just you thought you'd protect... I'd like to take you now to what Alan says he was doing on the night Arthur Easton was murdered, October 13th, 1985. Sometime before 8pm, he went out for a walk. To deal with his father's recent death, he says he took these trips regularly, sometimes walking, sometimes cycling, on his red 10-speed bike. But like so many parts of Alan's character and this story, it was a habit open to interpretation. To his family, these strolls were a chance for Alan to clear his head and to grieve. But to the police, it was the habit of a weirdo, a loner, who detectives believed was also prone to peeping in people's windows. Alan says that night he was dressed in a red sweatshirt, brown cord trousers and blue track shoes. The American sitcom Benson was on the TV when he left. Alan says he remembers hearing it playing in the background as he got ready to go out. The TV schedule for that day confirms that the show was on between 7 and 7.30 on that Sunday evening. He then set out for his usual walk. He headed along Sheehan Avenue, Kelvin Road, Settlement Road and turned left into a local kindergarten. He went through Calvin Road Primary School, then circled back to make his way home. Did mm-hmm. anyone see you go out for a walk? I oh, do no, no. He says he was gone for about 35 to 40 minutes. After he got home, he listened to music for a bit, then had a shower, and then went to bed in the sleep out in the back garden that he shared with his brother Greg. Well, I saw him and he sort of looked at me
3: and, you know, he said so hi and that, and then just got ready for bed and hopped in and, Lights out, went to sleep. Did you see any injuries on him? No, nothing. Nothing, okay? he just looked normal, he just
0: like laying there, yeah. calm, any in mistakes? bed, tucked up. But police would say that Alan's evening panned out very differently. Just over a kilometre away, Arthur Easton was dead. He and his two sons had been viciously attacked in their own home. Alan Hall had not just gone out for a walk, as it claimed. He had gone to Grove Road, to commit murder. With a bayonet, he'd purchased from the military store Valentine's and left at the scene, wearing his brother Greg's hat that he had used as a disguise but was torn from his head. And with no witness to his movements outside of his family home that night, he had no alibi. It was these three elements that formed the backbone of the police case against Alan Hall. A man who says he is innocent.
1: Because um, I didn't commit to murder, mm. I didn't know the family, mm. why
2: should I go there in the first place? Mm. No. I know I didn't do it.
0: i have got the grave. No, no, I didn't do it. In the next episode of Grove Road.
1: When you, you have to remember, Alan was uh, interviewed for seven hours uh, with a, I like to call him a crack team of New Zealand detectives. Yeah. Um, and then. He was interviewed again for another 12 to 15 hours. All right. But no, no lawyer, no break. Detectives have finally traced the origin of the bayonet used to slay Arthur Easton in his Papakura home.
3: Thousands of people don't have alibis, it doesn't make them guilty of anything.
0: Yes. 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 Grove Road was produced by Maggie Wex. Audio production by Asher Bastian. Music by Asher Bastian and Grant Brody. Graphics were done by Kushal Bhatia, Vinay Ranchhood, and James Brown. With help from Finn Hogan, Silka Wheel, Roman Newson, Anand Hira, Kari Johnson, Michael Mora, and Sam Farrell. To learn more about the case, go to newshub.co.nz podcasts. If you have any questions or tips about the murder of Arthur Easton, please email us at groveroad.com at mediaworks.co.nz.